Today is Wednesday. It's November 1st, 2023 at 2.42 in the afternoon. Hi, it's John Williams. And once again, this is the Mincing Rascals podcast. Portions of this broadcast Saturday nights at 8 o'clock on WGN Radio. And you can listen to me weekdays on WGN from 10 to 2. I'm Austin Berg from the Illinois Policy Institute. And you can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Kate Plies, former Chicago uh, reporter and now proprietor of the very strange hybrid Chicago history novel website, Roseland Chicago 19. 1972 on Substack. I'm Brandon Pope, host of On the Block, powered by Block Club Chicago on WCIU and host of the Making Podcast on WBEZ. And I'm Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, another fine Substack publication. I'm also a die-easy University of Michigan football fan who's about ready to give up on the team this year because of their rule violations. <laughs> Eric just drags that thing around like a broken wagon wherever he goes. This oh, man. Slowly pulling along the fact that the days are numbered for vaunted Coach Harbaugh caught cheating, sending a scout to illegally get the signals from other teams' games. And it's just a matter of time before the investigation concludes that they cheated, the win should be vacated, and there goes the season in the bowl. Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) The good news, Eric, is there hasn't been an investigation from the Big Ten yet. And NCAA investigations can take three years, four years sometimes at this rate. So maybe you get a little more time to mourn and, and, and enjoy some wins at the same time. Well, I think Michigan had to forfeit something like 150 basketball victories or so. At some point, they, it was just this terrible scandal. And, and, and that wasn't even something that affected the outcome. That was about just paying players under the table. So this is, this is something that arguably this cheating scandal, stealing signs, allegedly, um, it's something that could affect the outcome of a game. It actually makes the game unfair, and so I, I can't. I don't see those, how there's a whole lot of choice for the NCAA or the Big Ten to strip Michigan of, of all or most of its victories. I mean, I don't think they scouted East Carolina for this, you know, or or UNLV this year, but but some of their other opponents, yes. So you know, speaking of payments under the table, I noticed that this week there was a basketball player from Michigan who went to Kansas, and he's really good. And the reason he went was because of the name, image, likeness money. And when asked about it, he said, why didn't you stay at Michigan? He says, well, they're not going to give me six figures. He's going to get over $100,000, the presumption is, to play basketball per year in Kansas. Boy, the landscape of college sports is sure changing right before our eyes, isn't it? Well, you're, you're talking about Hunter Dickinson, who was a star center for Michigan. And I bet six figures is an underestimate as to what he's going to make doing NIL stuff. I, I think some of these players are making in the in the seven figures really? for their NIL stuff. And, and Hunter Dickinson... Uh, I think is going to be a backup center in the NBA, and I think he's good. I think he's good, he's making more money playing for Kansas now than he's going to make. <laughs> Seriously, that he's going to make. You have to play overseas or or he'll ride the pine for some. He's just not. He's not that good. He's pretty good, but he's not that good. I'm in my in my uh, scouting estimation, and so and I, I'm kind of glad about that in a way that the players can make money in college. These guys are bringing in. Ton, I just, I just, this is a little bit of an aside, but, but uh, I saw today that the University of Iowa has sold out its women's basketball season, like thirteen thousand seats, 
uh, and basically because of Caitlin Clark. If you follow, you know, women's basketball at all, Caitlin Clark is this amazing player for Iowa, and uh, everybody wants to see her play. Yeah, I hope she's making a ton from NIL. I wonder what she is. That's a good question because obviously it doesn't work for women the way it does for men in any sport. But maybe in college basketball, the NIL for her might be better than it is for some of the guys because she is the most dynamic college basketball player. Period. Even some of these niche areas, right? So, like, Nebraska women's volleyball yeah. is, like, the hottest ticket in Nebraska. And they'll pack huge, huge, huge arenas, even stadiums, to see this women's volleyball team play because they're amazing. All of them were making no money until this happened. And they were providing so much value to the university, and now they get to see some of that. And that's sh- as it should be. But when a guy says, if you're not going to give me a million dollars, I'm not going to play college football for mi- basketball, say, for Michigan or whatever, doesn't feel like college sports anymore. The portals kind of changed that anyway, where guys can just come and go. And that's been happening for a couple of years. But I don't know. Do you guys think that maybe... This thing needs to be reined in a little bit. I think they're going to get to a point eventually where they're going to have to put up some sort of safeguards. I think it's great that kids are being able to make some money off their name, image, and likeness. Um, but once it gets into bidding wars between schools, yeah, here's a, here's going to be the big hurdle. Once schools are allowed to actually dole out money themselves to students and not just work out deals on behalf of them with other companies, yeah, that's that's a that's a door that's opening here soon. Um, and a door that's really going to make the rich get richer and smaller schools as deep as that divides. Right. So I do worry about that. But I say, hey, get your money, kids. You know, if 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 you don't want to go to a bad NFL franchise, well, why don't you stay a year, make some more money than you probably would and, you know, keep it rolling. Yeah. I mean, what's the difference between what what you're talking about, Brandon, what goes on right now, which is that these colleges, I mean, places like Michigan, they they coordinate their their name, image and likeness money. They have it's not like oh gee there happens to be a car dealer down the street who's they have paying. an officer dedicated to yeah. doing those deals for the kids yeah so so it's it's very it's very much like that right now and I, and I can imagine a situation coming up where in order to get that money players are going to have to sign a contract so they'll be under contract so that a hunter dickinson going to michigan is going to have to sign a, a three-year contract or a four-year contract to get that money and and again, that kind of makes sense. It's much more like the professional leagues where players just can't say, ah, I'm tired of this team. I'm going to that team. Yeah. Uh, although they do move around quite a bit, but at least there's still some yeah. sense that the team owns somebody. Right now, they can just move around at will. So, Kind of makes me just pine for the good old days when this was all done under the table and the kids would be driving new blazers and nobody asked any questions and it wasn't so gross. It wasn't so in your face. Now... The guy goes, hey, if you don't have a million dollars, I think I'll go play for Duke. Does it seem like every week it's a new level of angst about the migrants coming to Chicago, a new wrinkle to this story? It kind of reminds me of our podcasts in 2020 and 2021 here where we wondered every week, when will there be something else to talk about besides COVID? And there are other subjects to be sure, but the pictures of the migrants' small tents On the cold sidewalks after Chicago's first snow have motivated our city to finally do actually nothing. The editorial cartoon in the Tribune today by our old pal, mincing rascal Scott Stantis, shows Mayor Brandon Johnson as the Statue of Liberty in front of Chicago. And the sign before him reads, now entering Chicago, a sanctuary city, except the second half of that word is crossed out and it now just says, a sanctimonious city. 
Without offering an easy or ready fix, the editorial ends this way. Migrants are here. Many have children. All of them feel cold. Austin, how has the story changed or evolved lately? What What's next? What's next is not clear. You have the, the latest we've heard from the mayor's office is that sometime in the next month, they will be starting up some kind of larger shelter solution that isn't a police station. And that's all we've heard. And it's been extremely difficult for media to get answers out of the mayor's office. They haven't granted an interview since someone can correct me. It's like late September or something like that. Like, really stonewalling a lot of journalists in the city. The thing that has me most frustrated about this lately is I had several people in the last week reach out and say, hey, this is really bad. Do you know of anything that I can do? And I feel like we've all had those conversations because Chicagoans are have big hearts and would like to help. And when you see people, especially children, outside of police stations and it's getting cold, people would like to help. And what is the city? what has the city done to facilitate some of that Absolutely nothing. So if you look at the department that's supposed ostensibly in charge of this, which is the Office of New Americans, you go to the city website. There's a bunch of sort of blocks you can click on. One of the blocks is Texas New Arrivals. And you click on that and it's a big headline that just says the welcoming city. And then it's three paragraphs about how welcoming of a city we are. With no no links to resources, no recommendations, uh, if, if you're trying to help, there is no coordinated city response to help citizens help each other. The best resource I found was from Block Club a year ago, an article that said, here's some organizations you can support. And there was three on there. One was Erie Neighborhood House. One was Community Health. One was Southwest Collective, which all seemed like fine organizations to get involved with. But it seems like the city, rather than using the bully pulpit to say, hey, Chicagoans, if you want to help, this is going to take all of us to to help solve. Here's what you can do. They've just sort of been uh, stonewalling media and having a very unclear strategy. It seems to be sort of catch as catch can. A lot of religious organizations uh, are coming in from even out of town to help out. Uh, I know that uh, my wife just spent this morning at a church handing out coats and other winter clothes to to some of the migrants in our area. Brandon Johnson, I was in touch with Mary Ann Ahern from Channel 5 this morning, and I asked her how long exactly has it been since the mayor has taken questions from reporters. She said, aside from a quick interview on Channel 9, he hasn't spoken to a gaggle of reporters since his budget address three weeks ago today, mm-hmm. uh, three weeks ago Wednesday, I should say. So so um, uh, that's really troubling to me that he is not really leading uh, in any way in ter- terms of this. And it is, you know, we we... I mean, we were chided for calling it a crisis, and maybe it's more a challenge. But I think this challenge is becoming a crisis. Uh, one other thing I'll say is that there was a, there was some great coverage uh, in the Tribune this morning. It was posted last night uh, by uh, Laura Rodriguez Presa and and Nell Salzman, uh, where they spent a night going around and talking to people and looking at what kind of uh, conditions they were facing uh, at the uh, police stations and at various other places, and and it was kind of scary and horrifying and and it was only 30 degrees the other night i mean it's like that's really i mean it's like it was cold and people were saying like i like the cold permeates everything i feel so feel so bad and and but but that's a fairly mild winter night in chicago it's going to get much much worse much you know very quickly and that really has struck me which is that the urgency of this situation uh, seems very very strong and and yet the city response seems scattered the tribune editorial on this was really stellar i thought they really 
came to the point at the end where they said Brandon Johnson needs to actually step up and speak to people about this. And it's so ironic because yesterday he just released yet another statement instead of actually coming out and talking to people and just being realistic about it. Um, Obviously, talking about it doesn't fix it. But I do think part of the problem has been his and the city's attitude that they've been conveying to people that it's not really a problem. There's enough to go around. Chicago is so wonderful and welcoming that we can do this while also addressing everyone else's needs. And when you don't speak reality to people, they're not going to take anything you say seriously. And they're going to panic a little bit. And I think that's why we see things like one of the 12th Ward aldermen uh, literally getting attacked last week. If I remember correctly, the aide that was with her actually did have to get treated at the hospital. By members of her own community, not by the migrants, but by the people who didn't want the migrants in their backyard. Yeah, Yes, exactly. It's just a mess. Um, (laughs) It it really is just a mess. And I think there's, there's a lot of frustration, too, because the mayor's office has a plan, five-point plan that they haven't presented, which leaves people in the dark, leaves lots of questions. You have now many aldermen who feel like they're being left in the dark as well about different plans for migrant shelters in their communities. Communication, I think, could solve so many issues here. Really could solve many issues around uh, more than just the migrant crisis, but issues in general. It needs to be better communication from uh, the top down. But also, I just... I think about this big picture, the, the, the border issue that the Republican Party has radicalized around for so long has become a, a issue across border towns and in, in, in major cities now where people now have to actually look at this, whether you're in New York City or El Paso and say, all right, maybe there do need to be some real transformative solutions federally to take care of this. Big question is, where's the federal government? Where's the support when it comes to this? I know that Joe Biden's currently dealing with Ukraine and and Israel and Gaza, but there's some issues here at home that are pressing and that $150 million allocated in the budget for this is not going to cut it at all. That federal support has to come down and the federal government has to answer for this at some point. It's falling at the feet of the city in many cities. But it shouldn't have to. And the governor said, don't expect us to give any more money. There's not any money coming out of the next session where we're going to help Chicago. And I think part of Brandon Johnson's problem is that none of these aldermen that are speaking out, granted, lack of communication, so that's their bad. But I'll bet you that if the mayor had communicated better with the alder persons, they still wouldn't want the migrants in a hotel in their ward. That's maybe what's stalling any progress is that there's none to be had here. Nobody, one of us on the panel, it wasn't me last week, said that Lori Lightfoot would just say, okay, you, you're getting the migrants. You, you're getting some migrants. You know, I mean, maybe collaboration here won't work. Better communication, sure, that's always good. Good, good, good. But I can't, nobody has raised their hand to say, you know what, this sucks. 
give me my share. Nobody has said that. Nobody has. And maybe it's because they're elected officials and they don't want to lose the election. They're representing the will of their people. But we, we've got some real estate here, Austin. Let's put them somewhere. And, 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 uh, yeah. and tough beans if you don't like it. That's a very much a not-in-my-backyard issue uh, for a lot of aldermen. And the problem, I think, with the mayor's approach that we saw in the 12th Ward in the Brighton Park neighborhood is that Basically, the approach has been, hey, a construction crew shows up in your neighborhood and won't talk to you about what they're preparing. And then it turns out, oh, we're preparing a large base camp for uh, a lot of people to come and stay there. Like, who is going to react to that? And there, there's probably no worse way to go about <laughs> yeah, doing really. that, right? It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah. oh, you're lying to me and it's scary and like, I don't know what's going on. So um, we know how not to do it certainly. Yeah. And yeah, there is tons of vacant land. And I think a lot of the problems have been around, like, uh, I think we've talked about this on this podcast a little bit, but like, it's not as easy as people think necessarily to take an abandoned building and make it suitable for people to live in. But there does seem to be some movement on, I remember I, I've seen a large, uh, like Jewel Osco that was not formerly that nobody was in that's been bought by the city and uh, that could be done. That seems like a good solution. I know McCormick Place is not uh, ideal, but and there's conventions there, but there's tons of empty space in McCormick Place all year round because that is a massive boondoggle that the city pays way too much money to upkeep and isn't filled with conventions every year, but that could be a solution. The current method of site selection has been really, really lacking. I'm wondering whether the cold weather, whether the increasing cold is going to change people's hearts when it comes to, you know, they're not in my backyard thing i mean when when it's kind of warm out and you've got these people just camping out in your parkways or whatever that that feels a little intrusive but at some point your humanity has to kick in and i'm i'm thinking that when the temperatures dip into the teens and below the teens which they're gonna do uh the idea of saying well i don't want someone you know living two blocks from me in a tent camp in a park because I don't know, because they they might, uh, I don't know, interfere with my jogging path or something. I, that, that, that the weather itself may change people's hearts when it comes to the, the NIMBY aspect. Of Eric, this. I thought you were going to say, I wonder if the weather is going to change the people's hearts that are in Venezuela and are thinking about coming to a northern city in the winter. You know, I don't mean this to sound inconsiderate, but when are these human beings going to take some responsibility for decisions they've made on their own? You know, they should have asked their travel agents. Uh, I'm sorry, but I mean, these people aren't stupid, right? Like, they're adults. They're young adults. They have young children. I'm all about how pathetic it is, but come on. are they getting choices? Are they saying? Are they getting brochures? I mean, I, I think they're just being put on buses and saying, "Here's where you're going." Or I think they're, they're being choices. asked, "Do you want to go to Chicago?" And they say or, yes, and they get New on York. the bus. Okay, New, New York. York. Well, it's cold in New York getting, too. Are they getting the option to stay there? I don't. I'm not sure they are. Okay. I think they're being put on buses and say, "You're going somewhere." And it's they- very confusing because uh, in some of the coverage that I was reading this morning, one of the young mothers, and it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking for for any parent, anyone, not just parents, to to read about these parents who are trying to sleep outside with with tiny babies with just blankets, um, and one of them decided that she had had enough with this particular snow and was heading off to Greyhound to get on a bus and go back to Texas. 
So it's very confusing as to how that's all working. I think part of the problem with people being against um, these surprise encampments that might suddenly pop up nearby and and one to 2000 people in tents is, is nothing to sneeze at. So uh, part of what I do want to say here was that I, I don't think that we should poo poo too much people's concerns because some, some of the shelters can have extra crime around them. And if you're already in a pretty dense neighborhood with very little park space, and I think Brighton Park qualifies there for sure, you're going to be concerned about 2,000 people in tents. And it's that communication factor. Brandon Johnson says he's a communicator, but not only has he not spoken realistically to people about this saying, it's going to be a problem. Everyone needs to pitch in having that speech saying every single alderman must not just give me a list of possibilities, but actually understand you're going to get X number of settlements. He hasn't done that whatsoever. And part of that is that people literally have no idea if 2000 camps get set up down the block, how long are they going to be there? No one has any insurances because they literally can't trust anything they're hearing from anybody when they just surprise people this way. Even though I think you're right, John, that the alderman must just be so happy to be able to go, you know, in front of the cameras and say, I didn't know anything about this. Uh, uh, I'm sure they're more than happy to not have the communication right now. It's perfect for them. Yeah, really. Lucky me, he didn't call. Kate Kate may be absolutely right, which is that the aldermen, they may be huffing and puffing, but they may be secretly quite glad. Like, for instance, the Brighton Park, yeah. uh, that's the jewel parking lot, right? The aldermen may be, you know, oh, how dare they do this? Because they don't want their constituents mad at them. They want them mad at Mayor Johnson, who's not facing re-election for another three years. Right. And... And so they can say, well, I, you know, what can I do about it? But they, you know, maybe they're saying that this is fine. This is what we got to do. But they need to at least put on a show of being opposed to it. And, and, and Mayor Johnson wants people bad, mad at J.B. Pritzker and J.B. Pritzker wants people mad at Joe Biden. Yep. Um, yep. The one person right. that has been not involved in this at all, which is very, very interesting to me, is Tony Preckwinkle. Yep. We yep. never, ever, ever hear about a county response. And it's really odd. And in terms yep. of like flying under the radar, she's been... So yeah. effective at that. Her phone's That's on what? vibrate. She hasn't. She, 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I've got, and, and it's not as though, you know, Cook County has a hospital system. Like, this has a very large effect on county government. And we've heard almost nothing from Tony Preckwinkle, who is really the head of the Democratic Party here. And and you've really heard nothing. The other thing I've been thinking about is, like, in terms of the most humane solution, the governor and the mayor have put themselves in a bit of a trick bag here. Because you can bet, especially as temperatures drop, There are many families here who didn't choose to be here who would prefer to be somewhere else. If I don't have a place to sleep, I would prefer to be in somewhere that is not Chicago. I I, I don't want to be in the tundra in the winter. But if the city or the state were to say, we will pay for your transportation to somewhere else, they've lost all of their political leverage in terms of this crisis, right? Because they've been blaming uh, that exact same process for why migrants are here in the first place. But if you think about what is among all of these horrible options, the actually most humane thing to do rather than saying, sit tight, sit there, send them to Florida would be to, yeah, go at least somewhere that isn't freezing cold. Mm -hmm. Um, Carbondale. I don't think that's going to happen. The southern part of the state. Has there been a conversation about sharing this with other parts of the state? It's much warmer in Carbondale and Edwardsville 
than it is in Rockford and Chicago. I haven't heard any discussion like that. They would love that, John. I'm sure. Well, what, what was was the Juliet Township that, that yep. just rejected yep. money? Yep, eight million dollars. They said no. Yeah, thank you're you. You're not going. You're not going to get any buy-in downstate or even in the suburbs. I don't. I mean, I guess Oak Park and Evanston are, are at least wringing their hands about this a little bit. Okay, so Brandon, here's my press conference. Then the mayor stands there, Eric, and and he's got an alderman on his left and an alderman on his right, and he's worked with them prior to this press conference to each kind of stand up and say, okay, we're going to take our share. Uh, this uh, apartment building is going to take 300 and that park we're going to put a tent. That would be the way to do it. You know, I think it could be cool if that happened, if you could get a bunch of councilmen to agree, uh, but I don't think that's ever happened. <laughs> I, I, I but I, I see where you're going here. You want to get everybody. Well, that's what it would look the like if they page. had. Yes, if they had you want done some the, cohesion. Done right? the work. You want some cohesion. Yeah. I, I think part of this too. You want some. You want some joint strategy, right? So that everyone, no one has a feeling like they're getting a fragmented part of this. And oh, I heard this. Well, I heard this. Well, I heard this. There. I, I would hope that there is some sort of briefing that the mayor's office is giving to the entire city council about this issue, especially when they have their city council meetings. Um, doesn't seem like that's always the case here, and that's part part of the issue we're getting into as well. The lack of communication, balls being dropped here and there, and yeah. people getting frustrated because of it. There's two other- I don't think it's pie in the sky. It's just that Brandon Johnson has to have something to give the people who stand in back of him and agree to take things. Yeah. And clearly he hasn't had that communication with them and that give and take. Yeah, he's got to do the work before, I know, my fantasy press conference. The war continues in Israel and the Gaza Strip. The death toll keeps rising. It is hard to know what the numbers are to present in this podcast, but it seems that as of today, consistent reporting says about 1,500 Israelis were killed in the terrorist attacks last month and that more than 6,000, maybe now more than 7,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza and the West Bank. There is some suspicion about the numbers killed in Gaza as those come from the Gaza Health Ministry, and that's controlled by Hamas. After President Biden said as much, the ministry there issued a list of 7,000 names and ID numbers associated with Persons, they said, have died in Gaza. I also saw at least one report that said the number of Hamas fighters who have been killed is about 1,500. And finally, a story in The Guardian today says the number of IDF soldiers killed so far is just over 300. I guess all of that to say, if those numbers are relatively true, that far more Palestinians have been killed than Israelis, and that women and children and senior citizens continue to die even as a smaller number of Hamas fighters are actually being killed. Even saying that seems perilous, doesn't it? Because somebody listening to this is going to say, why are you on that side? Or why are you reporting it in a way that favors this side? Eric and I talked about this on the radio this week, that, boy, if ever there was a conversation difficult to just sort of straddle the middle and see it from a third-party vantage point— this is it. Yeah, I mean, I wrote something that I thought was fairly <clears throat> benign about uh, saying that if you respond to atrocity with more atrocity, you're just going to harden hearts and inflame hatreds uh, for many more years to come. And this was greeted on both sides uh, as as something that said it was too weak, that it was insufficiently supportive of the Palestinians or insufficiently supportive of Israel. And people, you know, 
dogpiled on me from both sides. And I was like, you know, I, I just sort of, sort of felt I wanted to put that out there. It's, that seems to be sort of conventional wisdom. I don't think it was like any great thought I had. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I said it. And then and, and I also realized I, while I was saying it, I was saying, look, I am not a student of this conflict. It's been going on 75 years. Really smart people, very involved in it, have tried to sort it out and settle it and have failed. So I don't think a Substack writer in Chicago who's never been to the Middle East is going to have any good ideas as to how to solve it. But no. Just, just talking about but it. But you though, weren't trying just, to. But you were just trying to make to. a point. That's the I was thing. Just, I was just, yeah, I was just trying to say. And, and I, you know, I, I stand by that. I read all the, the stories. Apparently, there's a, there was a, uh, like a, a refugee encampment where they thought that there was a Hamas general or a Hamas leader. And so they bombed the crap out of it and killed, I don't know, hundreds of people in order to get this one guy. And I guess that's the way war goes. It makes me wonder, you know, we, we people talk about, well, the bombing of Hiroshima and, and the, certainly the, the bombing of Dresden, places like that where many, many civilians were killed and, and civilians are killed in every, in every war. Uh, but we didn't have the kind of media that we have now. And just going through social media and looking at the, at the video that you see from Gaza, uh, and the visit video that you saw from Israel uh, really bring home to you the, the kinds of personal losses that we have. That there's there was sort of an abstraction when you think about like Hiroshima. For a lot of a lot of us, I mean, none of us were alive then, but but uh, just reading the history, it's it's it does seem really abstract in a way. And this is feels very feels very real. And those, I think, also the difference in uh, comparing those is difficult because in those cases, it's a war of nation against nation. And this is really a fight against terrorism, which is sort of different uh, in scope. And I, I think, Eric, to your point, like there was a I think the Huffington Post reported that there was a State Department memo instructing employees to avoid terms like de-escalation, like end to violence, like restoring calm. And if leaders in our country can't say things like that, that the ultimate goal should be restoring calm or an ultimate goal should be de-escalation that really risks escalation into a regional war. And that I could think of no better outcome than that for Hamas, for the atrocities that they committed, that it sparks a really religious, a broader religious and regional conflict, um, as a result of this, and and it's concerning that that can't be talked about. Austin, what what do you think, or what does the whole panel think? What did Hamas hope to accomplish uh, on October seventh? They clearly weren't going to take over Israel. They weren't going to conquer Israel. They didn't have. They they wanted to inflict a lot of pain, and then what? What was what was their next goal? And, and it, to to my mind, it was to spark just this thing you're talking about, some sort of a regional conflict uh, where there, the Israel would be outnumbered and and outgunned, perhaps, except none of those countries have nuclear weapons. Uh, but that there, there was, there's got to be some purpose to that rather than just killing uh, a couple of, you know, 1500 people that doesn't really do anything for Hamas. And in fact, the, what happened afterwards the you know the the bombing of of uh, of Gaza and the the deaths there that was inevitable they had to know that i mean anyone who gamed this out at all had to know that was going to happen so where does it go from there i don't know but it does seem like the status quo is untenable too and hamas wasn't democratically elected it's a good question eric and there is no good answer to it but i also think that ultimately one of these days 
this was going to happen. And maybe it was the fact that some of the Arab nations were getting closer to a pact with Israel, and they said, okay, let's push the button. I mean, none of that makes any sense in a way, but nor does keeping two million people living in a strip the size of Chicago without resources. I mean, at some point, something was going to happen. And I think right now, Israel is losing the PR war. I don't mean that flippantly, but the images every day now, every day, are children being pulled from the rubble in Gaza. Every day, you just get reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. If Israel hopes to win international support or sympathy, they they had it, but every day they're losing a little bit of it. Yeah, you know, in the alternate universe where I'm the international expert that people actually listen to, um, yeah. it's, it does seem pretty obvious, as, as Eric was saying, that uh, this has to have been Hamas's purpose to pull in Israel into doing exactly this, because we all know that they have always embedded themselves in the civilian population, in schools, underneath hospitals, et cetera, for exactly that purpose. They want, they specifically say they want Palestinian civilians to get killed for this exact reason, to make Israel even more of a pariah. Um, In this case, Saudi Arabia was getting very close to, I believe, actually formally recognizing Israel, right? So, they were perhaps looking to derail that somewhat specifically. One way or another, yeah, if if anyone was going to listen to me, I would have thought the thing to do in this this specific time for Israel would be to, yes, fortify, but to sit back for a minute and get together a coalition of people who agree with you, nations who agree with you on the you know, unacceptability of what happened on October 7th and that and and recognizing that they cannot go on living with that right across their border and maybe even getting some kind of international coalition together to help out with it, because it does seem like instead that they knowingly jumped into Hamas's trap. I mean, it's kind of a briar patch sort of situation here, it seems like. Um, On the other hand, I, like many people, saw Netanyahu um, make his speech comparing, saying Israel should not in any way, you know, go in there and try and root out Hamas as saying that we should have declared a ceasefire after Pearl Harbor. Um, and it's and it's hard to sit over here so safe in my nice kitchen and say that Israel should do nothing. So it does kind of lead to a lot of people, I think, like myself, feeling very paralyzed as to what my opinion should yeah, be on. Yeah. Well, I think about that on 9-11, where if after 9-11, somebody else had said to the United States, now cool your jets, make sure you have an exit plan after you go into Afghanistan, and what are your plans in that part of the world? I don't think we had much patience for we, any kind of outside counsel. We didn't, but maybe we should have. I mean, maybe history teaches us a little lesson there, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And we also don't have uh, countries pummeling us with money um, that we're, we're basically bought by them. You know, we we're the most powerful, biggest, baddest military and government in the country. I'm sorry, in the world, um, and we act like it, and we fund a lot of death, and that's what's happening right now. We are funding a lot of death, and America's done that for decades, for centuries. It's not new. Um, it's just. It's devastating seeing those images out of Gaza, seeing what's happening. Um, 
And I'm fascinated to see what the not that this even matters at this point, but what the implications are going to be for this White House um, when it comes time for 2024. Because while there's polling that shows that Americans majority support the support of Israel, there's a deep generational divide on that. Very deep. Um, there was a Washington Post poll that came out that showed uh, that only about 38 percent of people under 30 years old agree with the U.S.'s stance on Israel. Meanwhile, we're, we're seeing on social media all of these devastating images. We're seeing the death toll climb and climb and climb. And you're seeing the international community even come out against what's happening with these with these strikes on Gaza and these innocent people a- at a certain point. Joe Biden and the White House can't keep playing this tightrope of, well, you know, we did caution them. Oh, we're cautioning them. Oh, eh. At some point, they got to take a stand. You're given a bunch of money to say something and stand up for what's right. I wonder if that age issue has something to do with the distance between World War II and that population, that the younger the population gets, the less impacted they or their parents, their families, their their family history is to what happened in World War II. I don't, I don't, I don't know if if that partly explains it, why it would be demographically that way. But as you talk, Brandon, you are reminding me of something you said on this podcast a couple of weeks ago. The thrust of it was, if I may, that if the Palestinians were whiter, if their skin color was lighter, that the outrage would be greater. And again, this is a couple of weeks ago. This thing has been fast changing. I do think there is a growing body of sympathy for the Palestinians. But at the time when you said that, I think people saw that as a rather severe remark. Is that a fair, though, recollection of what you said at the time? Yeah, it's pretty fair. And I I, I pretty much stand by it. I know that, Uh, but you sounded like you heard you got some feedback from that. What was that? I did. I did. And I, I think it's interesting. So it's important that when you're listening to somebody critique America, the country, you're not taking it personally as a critique on yourself unless you hold those same values. It's a great Southern saying, a hit dog will holler. I was talking about America, the institution, the country, the government. So if, if anyone felt offended personally, someone said that I was being being racist by calling out racism, which is. I don't know how that's possible. Um, you, you said know. that America loves, uh, not loves violence, but you, you tied American policy to violence. Well, yeah, and I, I agree. I, I don't think America inherently is evil, um, but I don't think that it's a it's a thing either where we have to glow on and on about how great America is with, and not call out the things that are wrong. The Israeli government's done some terrible things. We should be able to call that out. And not have that be a, oh, you're anti-American if you say so. Yeah. And America is not exempt from from being in it because they put their dollars behind it. They put their money behind it and they put their foot on a scale as to which side of it they'd rather be on. And so when that happens, people have the right to to say that that's a problem. Now that we're about two weeks out of it, we're seeing more and more people kind of wake up to, well, yeah, this death toll is getting a little skewed here. You know, even Wolf Blitzer. Had he was questioning an IDF spokesperson, and he was just really just aghast at how this IDF spokesperson brushed off. He kept asking over and over. So you, you're 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 doing this bombing, you did this bombing, and you're okay with with the casualties. And he says that's the cost of war. We're talking about people's lives, kids, women. One of the more patriotic things you can do 
is to call out your country and hold it up to the ideals it claims it has. Hold a mirror to it and say, hey, this is what you say you are. Then be that. I thought it was really interesting. We saw a week ago there was a resolution uh, that passed the U.S. House of Representatives in support of Israel. uh, And the vote was 412 to 10. And then I think maybe six were absent. And uh, the 10 is really interesting to look at because there are folks in there like an AOC or, uh, you know, uh, uh, an Ilhan Omar, people like that. But also in there was Thomas Massey, uh, a Republican congressperson. And he had something, he had a very interesting justification for that, which I think speaks to Brandon's point about the fact that we need to divorce our discussions about a uh, a level-headed and rational foreign policy uh, and uh, our emotions around what is a horrifying tragedy. And he had several reasons. I think it was four reasons. One was that he did not want to call for for sanctions on a sovereign country, uh, ultimately because they create laws that will be used to prosecute American citizens for engaging in trade. Uh, the second is that it asserts the necessity of foreign aid commitments, which he's voted against, which is basically the argument of we can't afford to do this. Third is that there was an open-ended promise of military support that is very broad, so broad that it could be interpreted to commit U.S. soldiers to the conflict. And fourth, that it would it would uh, tend to push us in the direction of broadening the conflict. Those are four very interesting reasons to vote against a resolution like that, that sound nothing like some of the rhetoric that I think is justly criticized from an AOC or an Ilhan Omar that it's, it, that some people would criticize as equivocating. There are many rational, fair-minded reasons yeah. uh, to oppose some of these things that, that get overlooked. And is Mike Johnson tying aid to Israel to... Well, he wants to make sure that the IRS doesn't get yeah, the funding. Yeah, that's it. That's funding it. That it's the same work. amount of money. What a coincidence. The amount of money that he wants to pull from the IRS is the amount of money that we could send to Israel, so let's just package mm-hmm. them together. Even- well, the thing, of course, the thing is that when you when you fund the IRS, you actually, that tends to be, is, the reading I've done suggests that, that uh, when you invest in IRS enforcement... It's a net it positive. It's a net positive for the government because they end up catching a lot of uh, wealthy tax cheats doing that. So, so uh, it's a very disingenuous argument to say that it's a pay for to uh, <laughs> take that money from the IRS. It's, well, it's it's the Republicans being friendly to their big business uh, and, and wealthy supporters. But it's funny. This is the first sort of stamp we've had for Mike Johnson. Now, okay, you're driving the bus. I want to segue into what's going on in the House here. Is George Santos going to be expelled from the House of Representatives? There's a representative, a Republican from New York, who introduced a measure last week to eject Santos, who's been charged with 23 federal fraud-related felonies. The House may vote today. I'm looking at producer Pete to see if it's happened, and so far, no. They may vote on a procedure to bypass the committee process, where it's been kicked to, and bring the measure to the floor for a vote. The resolution needs the support from two-thirds of the member of the House. I'm wondering how Democrats would vote on that. You'd say, well, they might get Santos out because you get all the Democrats to vote for him to go out. And then you only need, you know, what, maybe 100 or so of the Republicans, and maybe they could get that. I'm wondering if the Democrats would vote to keep him in. 
the stain will continue to live on the Republican Party who hasn't done anything about this guy. I, I, to me, it's like the least of George Santos's worries. Like that guy is probably in some really serious trouble on a number of fronts. I have a buddy who's a, a reporter over at the Miami Herald and reported out some George Santos stuff a, of like a couple months ago of uh, showing that he is so clearly the kind of person who will lie about small things in a way that actually carries real consequences, whether it's simply just like things like expenses or like where he was parking or like this. The next two years are not going to be kind to George Santos. And it might even be in his best interest to get expelled because then he can be kind of like like a martyr or something. Uh, But I, I always have trouble with votes to expel people before like the actual process has run its course, but it's completely within the House's right to do. And have you ever met a chronic liar, somebody who <laughs> almost has a mental disorder where they aren't tethered to the truth, they don't tell the truth? And I'm not talking about Donald Trump here. I'm talking about somebody who, like even the small things, I, I knew one person, maybe two in my life like that. And it's weird. They can be nice. They can be fun. They can be friendly. And then they'll tell you something and you go, that's not at all true. It's made up. And there was no benefit to them for it. But they, they don't seem to distinguish fact from fiction. I got an ex-girlfriend like that, John. <laughs> um, I do think with the George Santos thing, it's reached a point where, like, even his own caucus is like, we're over this. Like, bruh. It's a wonder how we got this far. You look at all the things he's lied about. It's, it's the smallest of things to the biggest of things. Lying about past jobs you've had. Lying about where you graduated from. Things that can be easily proven because you huge, are now in public office. Huge failure by the Democratic Party in New York and huge failure by the media. Yeah. Island. I mean, it just a double That's failure. That's a good point, Eric. Huge. How did the media not catch any of this before he was elected? I think or one, the Apple uh, research, yeah. One one Long Island paper did some material on it, but it just it didn't. The New York Times didn't. The major papers didn't. I mean, it was a, 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 scandalously bad. And I think if the if the Republican majority were a lot uh, bigger, they would get rid of him in a heartbeat. I think they really worry that they're going to need his vote. And uh, you know, it, it's it's really disgusting that they don't take a stand. I think that in the long run, it would it would redound well to the party to say, hey, look, we get rid of the people like this in our party, but but. Uh, you know they're so focused on on keeping their slim majority that they don't want to risk getting rid of them. Yeah, uh, I mean the the elections in a year from what is it today? Just about. I mean we are just basically one year from now. Yeah. So so I think they should probably take the chance and stand on principle and get rid of the guy. He's not going anywhere though. That is a guy who wants the paycheck. He needs mm. that paycheck. Yeah. And the and the fact that he's a member of the House of Representatives of the United States. He's got a staff. Yeah. I think he's very much loving that, even though every day must be miserable. Every time he looks any other congressman in the eye, they think fraud. Every time he sees a journalist coming down the corridor, he thinks run. I, I wonder where that guy has refuge. It's It must be a miserable day-to-day existence that cannot be a nice life. God, yeah, who works for him? It's hard to imagine. I wonder that sometimes. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Guys, two more stories I want to cover, and we have just a, a matter of minutes here. So let's at least bring this up. Let's start with the Investing Kids program. Eric and Austin have talked about that on this podcast before. They're in different places. But the Tribune editorial and the governor seem to be in the same place about this. And Austin, what's your read on where that is right now? Well, Governor Pritzker last week made a comment uh, sort of in support of the program, but he essentially said – 
if the extension of this program reaches my desk, uh, you know, I would sign it. And that's good because there are 9,600 kids who receive scholarships, low-income kids across Illinois, who are really counting on this program to continue in order to keep going to a school that's best for them, whether their locally zoned school was one where they were bullied, one where they couldn't get the educational opportunities that they needed. Well, who knows, for, for whatever reason, they are attending a different school because their family said that this was not the right school for them. And there are another 26,000 kids across Illinois on the wait list. So the governor said, if this reaches my desk, I'll sign it. Uh, that's good in one sense in that lawmakers don't have to guess, uh, you know, if I vote for this, is the, is the governor going to veto it? They no longer have to guess about that. But it also could be read as simply a, a covering of his back on this issue, which is to say he can wash his hands of it if it doesn't reach his desk. And if it is that, uh, I think it's very cowardly because the governor has spent more money on politics than anyone in the state of Illinois over the last five years. He spent $350 million of his own money to get elected. He could have one phone call with Don Harmon, the Senate president, and Chris Welch, the House speaker, and say, hey, this is important. These kids... Uh, are in this program, we do not want this to expire and for them to lose these opportunities past this bill. It's a voucher? I mean, what what is it exactly? Is it a tax it's credit? It's actually not a voucher. I think it's a misconception. People call it a voucher program. A voucher program is when you get uh, direct subsidies from the state and they say, here's $10,000 that would have gone to your state education. You can have this. This is very different. This is saying This is a, a tax credit scholarship program. And the way that that works is that individuals and businesses can donate money to scholarship organizations. And in exchange for that donation, they get a state tax credit. So the money that is being used to finance uh, these scholarships for kids, it never touches the state coffers. It's not public money, um, but there is a tax credit associated with it. Um, some people have used that to say, well, this is taking away money from public schools, but that's not how it works. The way this is passed is that it's completely divorced from public school funding. Public school funding's up $2 billion since Invest in Kids passed in 2017. If anything, it has, it has increased the money available, available for public education, especially because the kids who are not in their public school anymore, the state doesn't have to pay to educate them. It is a savings for the state. Um, and it is good for public education. And those, those two things shouldn't be pitted against each other. Well, you know, my, my thought is that, that when you're doing tax credits, this is money that's supposed to go to the state in, in the general revenue fund, and it's going right to private education and religious education. And I just don't think that that kind of money should be, that public money should go to private schools. Uh, Pritzker in 2018 called it a really bad idea. And then he since he's waffled and squished about it, and I agree with Austin that he is he's probably just trying to cover his hind end, or that's my that's my uh, sense of it that that uh, he and, and uh, Rich Miller did a pretty good uh, syndicated column where he detailed the flip flops and, and and dodges that Pritzker has has done about this. Now the Democrats have have decided that they want to change the program. They want to lower the amount, the total amount to $50 million. And instead of a 75% tax credit, uh, they want 100% credit for the first $5,000 and then 65% tax credit for additional amounts. If the children they sponsor live in underserved communities, 55% credit if the children don't and so on. It's a very, it's sort of a complicated uh, piece of, of equipment going on. But but what strikes me is that, that there's no reason that people who support this idea of giving uh, 
giving poor children the right to uh, go or the opportunity to go to other schools, uh, that, that they can still donate money and take a conventional tax write-off for it. This is just special tax advantage for these schools. And it turns out that in a lot of places where they do this around the country, that, that uh, most of the students who take advantage of it are students who are already in private schools. So it's it's uh, it's one of the things where I feel like uh, and the, the the further problem I have with this is that no one really wants to get to the question of like what is that these pu- these public schools that they say oh they're these failing public schools public schools are, are the best schools in the state that that uh, uh, you look at in suburban areas you say well what's this what's the secret sauce of these of these private schools that they're that they manage to do so well and and this is a question that when you when you start talking about what schools do and why they fail it gets it's a very deep question and to say well we're just going to allow some parents who are smart enough to take to figure out how to take advantage of the system to go to other schools who may exclude other kids and stuff i mean it's it all seems to me like we ought to take this money and we ought to invest it in smaller class sizes one-on-one tutoring and in public education for public schools that don't exclude people and don't proselytize it's a both and solution and you need to have you need to have both because there's some kids that need an escape route now from a bad situation that they're experiencing and they're able to take advantage of this program to do that. There was someone who tweeted at me who works at a nonprofit who made the same argument of like, well, people could still give money to give scholarships to kids. And and I took a screenshot of their website where they said their 501c3 letter and that your donation is fully tax deductible and basically said, well, if that's the case, you should just take this 501c3 deduction off your website. Like that way you'll make sure only the good hearted people donate to your organization who aren't expecting anything in return, who aren't expecting any kind of tax credit. It's a thing of incentives and we want to incentivize people to give more money to scholarships in Illinois. And that's why we have the tax credit. And then right, finally, I- the, the, the public private argument is one that is frustrating to me because there are so many other public programs that function in this way that do not get the same scrutiny as it does with K-12 education. We have MAP grants in Illinois uh, for higher education or Pell grants at the at the federal level that funds private education, often at religious institutions uh, of higher education. We have Medicare and Medicaid dollars that go to often nonprofit religious hospitals. Uh, we have SNAP benefits that go to private businesses in the form of grocery stores. It's just a question of, do we wanna give kids this option or not? And I think for those families, it is a very clear, yes, we want this option. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, the only observation I have, because we've heard the two of you discuss this in the past, is that I think I've always been worried about what will be left of the public schools that are trying to be as good as they can be. And Austin has cautioned us that, in fact, in the instances where a program like this exists, what's left actually is better, that more recesses are dedicated to the kids that are still in the public school. And he had some statistic for that. And I left being not persuaded by that, Austin. Not that I don't trust you or that statistic, but I just thought that just seems so counterintuitive that I'm still hard-pressed to believe that. Yeah, you take the most motivated kids and the most motivated families yeah. out of the out of the public school, yeah. and, and the school gets better because the teachers decide they're going to teach better? That's what he I, said. I, I don't understand. I mean, this idea that all the, all the public schools need is just competitive pressure and they'll do better. I don't know what public schools, what you think they should be doing that they're not doing. I mean, it, it always strikes me as as this is a, a the nose of the camel into the tent for basically privatizing education. 
and and getting and and harming teachers unions and that's i think that's where that's why the teachers unions are opposed to it is they see where this is where this would go down the line if if the program like this were to go from 9000 kids to 90000 kids the mecha- yeah the mechanism isn't like teachers try harder but part of the mechanism is the fact that there are more resources available for the kids who remain at the school that's definitely part of it so because you don't have certain kids as many kids who are there you should be able to devote more resources to those kids and yeah, there's been, if you look at a meta analysis of all, there's been so many studies on this issue. And of course, you're going to find some that say this had no effect um, uh, on on test scores in, in uh, public schools. But the predominant share, like 10 to 1, show that this increases uh, test scores, retention, graduation rates, um, out, better outcomes later in life, even for public school children. Uh, and we've seen that in a number of places, most notably 90 minutes north of us uh, in Milwaukee. Last topic. Kate brought up something before that when we did the video pre-roll, I had heard about, but I wasn't as dialed in on. You are paying attention to the number of migratory birds at this time of year come through Chicago and slam into, uh, is it McCormick Place? Well, they slam into a lot of the downtown buildings, but McCormick Place being right there on the lakefront, exactly in the migratory path of all the birds and the monarch butterflies on the way south, definitely bears the brunt of it. And probably a lot of you guys remember that it was almost exactly a month ago that they had a really big migration night and almost a thousand birds died flying into McCormick Place all by itself. What amazed me at that time was that they had to be talked to about turning off their lights. This is not a new concept. The Lights Out Chicago campaign started, uh, I'm going to say 1995. But I was surprised when I actually went and checked out the city's website that it's completely voluntary, completely voluntary. So a lot of buildings do turn off their lights at night, but only if nobody's there and only if they feel like it. And the birds and butterflies will be less likely to fly if the lights are not on on that spot? Right. If the if the lights are on, then they see reflections and they just fly right into the windows. A really, really terrible thing to have a thousand birds in, in a single night. The photographs of the Field Museum people with just trays of these little dead yellow warblers was was pretty heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what struck me was that it, this is a public building. It's, it's owned by McPeer. And uh, just today, it turns out that they're just now addressing it, really. The board has agreed that they're going to start closing the curtains on McCormick Place during migration season. They were just so, they're just so clueless that they actually told the woman who's head of uh, Chicago um, Bird Collision Monitors, which is a a wonderful group, um, they told her, uh, some of the board members, that they didn't even realize that so many birds. (laughs) Really? That's that's their their building. How could you not know that? Yeah. The bird collision people meet every morning. There's a group of them, and they walk around downtown picking up dead birds. And there's a group of field museum people who McCormick Place is their territory. They take care of McCormick Place. 
it's just kind of astonishing to me. In its indifference. Uh, In its indifference, maybe, right? I mean, I wonder if part of the problem is uh, persuading people that this is sufficiently noteworthy or 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 harmful to that species Mm -hmm. right but a thousand lives is a thousand lives even if they're birds and if you just close the damn curtains tonight a thousand birds what was it the tribune or somebody had a story saying that uh, was the bird or the butterfly that left from somewhere in south america would have made it to vermont or you know some great journey Mm-hmm. But they didn't turn the lights off and give the bird a chance. And I think if they turn wow. the damn lights off, you know. This really is all voluntary. But this is a public building. It's not like we have to go to some private owner and ask them to do something. It, it's just amazing to me that a, a public building like this is not on the ball. Why did it take so long? Any idea? Is it, uh, Or is this a special year, the, the migratory uh, there was something. There was something very special about that evening. Um, the night before had been a bad migration night for the birds. And windy. Kind of it was like windy. And they were all waiting, night. waiting, waiting, waiting. And finally, the temperature and the winds were such that they said, OK, we got to go. We're never going to get there. That's basically it. Yes. It was like Thanksgiving all of a sudden, but for birds. (laughs) I'll tell you what, seeing all these dead birds is jarring. I see more and more just laying around the street. Um, And I hope people take better care. It's funny that uh, there is a community of people who do that. The goal, you know, I, I mean, there's all kinds of groups, populations, and interests out there. And only recently I discovered that there are these bird collision monitor people. What an interesting avocation or hobby you know i, I don't know what Sign you call <laughs> yeah yeah it's a great phone number to have in your contacts because Why? when you find an injured animal um they will like I, I found an injured baby squirrel and they took that for me okay and took it someplace to because they don't just pick up the dead birds there's a lot of injured birds mm-hmm. so they're so who- they're also looking for birds that can can live and they have places that they take them to get nursed who do i call uh, Chicago Bird Collision Monitors, 773. Oh, hold on, I'm literally writing this down. 773. Okay. Yeah. 988-1867. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And shout out to the uh, Montrose Bird Sanctuary where a lot of those people hang out, I think. That's a very beautiful yeah. part of the city that I feel like people don't check out a lot. Well, isn't it nice that in a world of big problems and big cities that we can also notice the least among us little birds just flying through you can do two things at once folks kate i'm glad you were able to join us today thanks john brandon always good to see you eric zorn and austin berg we're produced by pete zimmerman and i'm john williams we'll drop another podcast on you next week kate i'm glad you you were able to get that in austin thanks man good to see you thank you thank you good to see you guys see you guys soon peace yeah i kept you for a long time but thank you well done well done everybody we'll put this up shortly see you guys later okay brandon good job man good to see y'all bye peace out Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com.